Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Tom Petty Project podcast. As always, I am your host, Kevin Brown. And before we dig into today's track, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the folks who've been interacting with me on social media. Twitter has really started to pick up in the last week or two, and there are some wonderful people on there that I'm really enjoying chatting with. Thanks to all of you who've been tweeting at me or DMing me, and to everyone else for your continued support and the memories and thoughts that you're sharing about Tom and his music. I've also had a couple of confirmations from people that they're interested in coming onto the podcast at some point to talk about their experience with Tom's music, as well as the album that I've been reviewing. Uh, And I'm hoping to be able to announce my first guest this week, so stay tuned for that. Okay, today we're talking about the iconic, the huge, the legendary final track on the debut album, American Girl. I don't really need to tell you to go listen to this one, do I? If you do need to listen to the song, though, or if you just want to listen to the song, which is never a bad thing, um, as always, you can head to the episode notes, and I've provided a link to the official Tom Petty uh, YouTube channel there. Once you've done that, I'll be here waiting very patiently for you, as always. You're back already? Ah. I knew you wouldn't have to re-listen to this one. Okay, let's talk about American Girl. First released in February of 1977, American Girl, like Breakdown and anything that's rock and roll before it, failed to chart. It's astonishing and surreal to contemplate that fact, given how huge a song it has become. It's an ever-present staple of rock radio and has been for over four decades and counting. Regardless of its lack of initial success... It has gone on to become one of the touchstone songs of the classic American rock and roll songbook, along with tracks like Born to Run, Ramblin' Man, American Pie, or or Born to Be Wild. And it's a song that still feels as fresh and toe-tappingly listenable today as it did way back then. Or as I assume it did way back then, because I wasn't listening to it. Um, It's also been a live staple during the entire career of the Heartbreakers. It's the most played song in the band's repertoire, and was basically very rarely omitted from the set list. In an interview in the July 1989 edition of Q magazine, Tom said, I had to go see Roger McGuinn. It was like being summoned to the headmaster's office. I was thinking that I was in for a real tongue lashing about stealing his sound and stuff. I was so nervous. And then he said, you know, I heard this song called American Girl. And when I heard it, I thought it was me. And then I thought, but I don't remember recording this. And then Tom says, and I said, yeah, well, I'm sorry about that, sir. So I think to have one of his first songs recognized by one of his heroes, what a rush. The two of them, of course, became firm friends in the years that followed and would would go on to collaborate on 1991's King of the Hill. Roger McGuinn also recorded a much straighter version of uh, American Girl on his 1977 solo album, Thunderbird. So, you know, right after that, he'd heard it. He went out and decided that he loved it so much that he just wanted to put that down on vinyl himself. Uh, And his version loses some of the energy of the original in the arrangement. But when when you hear him sing it, you really are reminded of the similarities that the two singers share at times. I'd argue that Tom had a far broader palette of vocal colours to pick from, especially as he grew older, but as I say, you can kind of understand why McGuinn might have mistook it for one of his songs if he was hearing it in the background or was only partially listening to it. For his part, in conversations with Tom Petty, Tom says, I don't think it sounds anything like the birds to me. We would never have dreamed that we could sound like the birds. We wish we could have sounded like the birds. Okay, that's probably enough of the background for now. We might get into a little bit more later. Um, let's talk about the the music. Let's talk about the drums and the guitars and the and the, and the and the vocals and those kinds of things. That's always interesting. The song starts out with those two guitars playing off one another, as they have been all album long. 
The drums come in after a couple of bars, and then we hear some hand claps until Ron Blair comes in with that absolutely epic little three-note bass line. It still gives me chills every time I hear it. It's strange, but there's a sense of optimism and positivity that radiates from that simple little progression, and the song would really miss it if it weren't there. As with most of the rest of the album, Tom and Mike's guitars are panned left and right, so you can really hear hear their parts very distinctly. It's also accentuated on this song because they're also separated by an octave, with I'm assuming it's Mike playing lower and Tom playing up higher. For fun, if you're listening to it under headphones, take the right side off your head and just listen to the left channel, and then switch. They're panned so hard left and right that you can really, really hear the, the individual parts when you do that. The verses are played pretty straight, with a sparse single strum chord progression for the most part, with some simple arpeggios in between, and then those wonderful bends on Take It Easy Baby. Um, although many people assumed it was played on a 12-string guitar because of how, how full the sound is, it's actually Mike and Tom both going back and forth on six strings. And I think that 12-string association also might be where um, the bird's connection comes in because that, that sound is, is really reminiscent of them. And of course, Listen to Her Heart has much more of that feel on the next album. Sticking with the guitars, Ron's bass line on this one is way funkier and a little bit busier than almost anything else on the album. And after that killer intro, which is fairly high on the on the fretboard, he drops down into that deeper bottom end and riffs off the kick pattern just beautifully. If you listen to an isolated version of the bass track, he's throwing in some little double notes and he's got a couple of great bends in there too. And it just adds to the overall dynamic of the song. The drums were very unusually recorded on a single track. Noah Shark suggested that as an experiment, and it would certainly make remixing that track basically impossible, as there's no separation between the kick, snare, hats, and toms, as it's on one channel in mono. It does work, though, because it's a very, it gives it a sort of very clean, simple, driving, in-the-moment type feel to the drums, which I think carries the, the, the motion and the energy of the song very well. It's a really sort of basic, modified, bow-diddly beat, uh, it's heavily sped up by by Stan, but you can still hear those clave accents in the way it bounces around over that persistent two and four snare hits. It's a fairly frenetic tempo to the song, and Stan just keeps everything moving along and adds in some nice little hat lifts to accent everything here and there. And there really aren't any of the symbols apart from the hi-hat throughout, which really puts the focus on that kick-snare pattern. Again, one of the things that the Heartbreakers do best. Don't play too much, get out of the way, let the song breathe. The middle eight in this song is one of my favourites of all time. It's so incredibly simple and subdued, but it provides that, that little respite from the drive and energy of the rest of the song. This is also when we hear Benmont finally take the spotlight for the keys, as he tinkles around on those seventh chords like an old honky-tonk blues player. And during that, we just have one guitar playing. It's a staccato muted rhythm that sits down in the mix and just adds a bass colour to the canvas with those wonderful three-note flourishes at the end of each phrase. Coming out of the bridge, we build with some high, harmonised vocals, then Tom's, oh, ah, ah, and we're off to the races with Mike's shimmering, blazing solo, which starts out simple, but then builds into those hammer-on, pull-off triplets that just make the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. Tom's vocal delivery on this song is just absolutely perfect, and it, again, it underscores what I said in an earlier episode that I think he's a really underrated rock vocalist. He nails every single syllable in that song, and he never has to reach for a note or strain his attack. He also uses those unusual phrasings too that he often throws into his delivery. He pronounces alone more alone and balcone, you know, to really fit the rhythm of the track. And I'll talk about the lyrics a little later as they still have that hard to shake urban legend attack to them that seems seems to persist. <laughs> Thank you. 
Right, it's been a couple of weeks now since we had some petty trivia, as we took a break from the album tracks in the last couple of weeks to talk to the wonderful John Scott. I really hope you enjoyed those two episodes, um, and I'm keen to bring in other people who are connected a little bit more closely to the Tom Petty story so that we have more conversations to share with you. It was great taking a break, but I'm really happy to be back into my my, my usual format. Um, and during the Lunar episode, I asked you what the three cover versions are that appear on the 16 studio albums that Tom recorded either solo or with the Heartbreakers. Now, if you've been following my social media, and if you haven't, why haven't you? You'll already know what the answer to this question is. So the first song is Feel a Whole Lot Better from Full Moon Fever. This Gene Clark pen birds hit kicked off side two of that album and was a mainstay of the last DJ tour. The second song is Change the Locks from the She's the One soundtrack. Originally from Lucinda Williams' self-titled 1988 album, this searing anti-ballad was never played live by the Heartbreakers, but remains a mainstay of Williams' live set. The last song is Asshole, again from She's the One. The Heartbreakers added uh, you know, more texture to this song than the original really lo-fi acoustic on Beck's 1994 album Somewhere in the Grave, which was sandwiched between the monster LPs Mellow Gold and Odelay. Now, your trivia question this week is this. Which Tom Petty solo or Heartbreakers album is the only one that does not feature a single songwriting credit other than Tom, with all songs written by Tom and Tom alone? So, no collaboration with Mike Campbell, no songs contributed from any of the other Heartbreakers, every single song written by and credited to Tom Petty. Okay, back to the song. The legend that surrounded the lyrics to this one concerned the tragic suicide of a girl attending the University of Florida who jumped to her death from Beatty Tower's dormitory. Supposedly, the reference to Route 441, which runs right past the university, is held up as supporting proof that this must be what Tom was writing about. Further evidence is conjectured in the line, yeah, and if she had to die. Because of that pause that Tom puts in the middle of that sentence, many people ignored the fact that the lyrics went on, trying, she had one little promise she was going to keep. And Tom himself dispelled this notion of a biographical angle to the lyrics and explained, I was living in an apartment where I was right by the freeway and the cars would go by. And I remember thinking that that sounded like the ocean to me. That was my ocean, my Malibu. So a much more broad narrative lyric rather than a true biographical story. It's one of those petty lyrics that just grips you from the very first time you hear it. Some of the lines are just so evocative and memorable. God, it's so painful, something that's so close and still so far out of reach. It's such an intuitive observation of the human condition wrapped up in one brilliant line. In an interview that I read, Stan Lynch, when talking about the recording of the debut album, says of American Girl, I think everyone knew there was a little lightning in the bottle on that one. And given that the song was recorded on the 4th of July in the US bicentennial year, it's hard to figure out how this song never hit the radio hard. Though, as John Scott told me, the record execs just didn't listen to it. They thought that the Heartbreakers were a punk band and just didn't give it a chance. A decision I'm sure they spent many, many years kicking themselves over. I talked a little about where this song sits in the American rock and roll canon earlier, but I will say that I think it stands out for a very specific reason. Whereas a song like Sweet Home Alabama is a rallying cry for the South, and of course Tom would go on to write one of those himself, and Bruce Springsteen really leaned into his New Jersey heritage for inspiration and for scenery, American Girl has much more broad, universal appeal. It's a song that's still going to be played on the radio 20, 30, 40 years from now and will still be relevant to a whole host of people no matter what their background. 
Okay, folks, uh, that's almost it for this week. All that remains is for me to rate American Girl. So not just because it's one of the all-time great rock and roll songs, not just because it's one of my favorites, but objectively, I think, as well as subjectively, I don't think there's a single thing wrong with this. Nothing's missing. Nothing's poorly done. There's not a note out of place. The stars aligned and Tom's lightning jumped out of the bottle and lit up the whole world. So it's a very clear and very confident 10 out of 10 for me. So it's a little bit hard to believe that I've finished the first album already. It's been just about three months now, but it seems like only yesterday that I hit publish on that trailer and wondered if a single soul would bother listening to this. I'm very, very happy that people are listening to this, and I hope you'll uh, carry on listening into season two and season three through 16 seasons, and God knows where we'll go from there. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Tom Petty Project, or if you're on Twitter, at Tom Petty Project. Uh, Please, again, leave me a review or a rating if you haven't done so. Um, And if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a share on your social media. Tell your friends about it, especially if they're Tom Petty fans, and please help me spread the word. Um, I'll put a few links again, as I always do in the episode notes, to some live versions of the song and Roger McGuinn's cover. I'll do that as well. Um, And remember to DM me if you want to come on the podcast to talk about Tom or a specific album or a favorite concert experience that you had or or anything else you want to talk about. Just get a hold of me. I would love to chat to you. So until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk with a special guest about the album and about their experience with Tom's music. Bye-bye.